Story 10 of Elsie and the Child, A Tale of Riceyman's Steps, and Other Stories by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 10. The Mysterious Destruction of Mr. Ipple. 1. As some women at a certain age give themselves out as twenty-eight, and others at another age give themselves out as thirty-eight, so Mr. Lewis Ipple let it be understood that he was fifty-eight. Mr. Lewis Ipple had a fat and prominent nose, a body to match, and a waistcoat not unspotted. He had never achieved personal tidiness, but this did not matter, because he was illustrious, and therefore could safely permit himself a few eccentricities. If asked to name the chief English dramatic critic, ninety-nine people out of a hundred sufficiently interested in the theatre to know anything about dramatic criticism would have named Mr. Lewis Ipple without hesitation and the majority of them would have added, of course. Theatrical persons with a taste for antiquity sometimes said that in the palmy days, when actresses could be clearly heard from the pit and plays had plots, an article by Mr. Lewis Ipple in the enormous morning paper which he represented could make or mar the success of a piece. The theatrical world, being the most conservative in the history of mankind, still generally believed in the mightiness of Mr. Ipple's pen, so that when, in his preoccupied and somewhat urgent manner, as of one who has a great matter at hand, he entered the Princess's Theatre, he was properly greeted by the general manager thereof, the acting manager, the manager for the production, the publicity man, the sub-lessee, the lessee, the licensee, and the owner of the building, all gentlemen far more magnificent to the eye than himself. He nodded to some and shook hands absently with others. He also acknowledged the flatteries of a few resting pretty actresses. Everybody expressed pleasure at seeing him back in his kingdom after his long illness, and several said that he was looking better than ever. The manager for the production, having been dug up from nowhere in particular, and not being abreast of modern customs, was foolish enough articulately to hope that he would like the show. The commissionaire in charge of the stall's entrance did not recognize Mr. Ipple, and instead of smiling met him with a question, Stall, sir? This was a blow, though one that Mr. Ipple could afford to laugh at. On the whole, his reception had not been unsatisfactory. The stalls were not yet half full. Mr. Ipple had arrived in time. He always arrived in time, for he took his profession seriously. He realized how, on first nights, the arrival of latecomers exasperated the acute nervousness of the artistes, and, moreover, he was of a leisurely and orderly disposition. He conscientiously studied his program. The play was entitled The Nice Niece. The name of the author meant nothing to him, but the names of all the artistes meant something to him, except that of the leading lady, Betty Brick, at least he judged Betty to be the leading lady from her position in the list of players. She came last and was preceded by the word and, which had a line all to itself. 
who is this betty brick he asked of mr arthur several who had sat down next to him with a nod seemingly unaware that this was the solemn night of mr ipple's reappearance after a painful retirement of six months mr several was a very young critic attached to one of your sprightly evening papers and his weakness was that he thought that ideas were a sufficient substitute for knowledge oh said mr several vaguely she made some splash in the spring in something or other has points i think she's only nineteen he spoke in a tone to indicate that while anxious to be polite to mr lewis ipple he had no intention of being intimidated by mr ipple's prestige mr ipple was somewhat shocked and yet pleased at the young man's vagueness in the matter of betty brick's professional history mr ipple had in his library the filed programmes of over two thousand five hundred first performances which he had attended and he knew by heart the professional history of practically every artiste whom he had once seen ah said he spaciously do you know her real name i think she's using her own name except that she's taken the c out of brick gives her a scandinavian flavour i suppose and do you seriously say she's only nineteen i am so informed and believe answered mr several well said mr lewis ipple i guarantee she'll prove to be twenty-nine if the facts were strictly investigated and he began to give an account of the ages at which during the last hundred years actresses had developed into leading ladies together with details of tricks which even youthful actresses played with their ages in fine he established a general principle that it was materially and morally impossible for a girl of nineteen to be a leading lady in any reputable west end theatre mr several was decidedly impressed by mr ipple's small talk and mr ipple knew that he was impressed mr several with mr several's literary friends had scorned mr ipple because they alleged he could not write and because he was apt to be enthusiastic about old-fashioned sentimental plays and very severe on plays which showed any tinge of novelty mr several on these grounds had concluded that mr ipple was perfectly futile and worthy to be stamped underfoot he now unwillingly perceived his mistake and when mr ipple went further afield and discoursed in precise detail of the french stage and the german stage pronouncing french and german names with an undeniably correct accent mr several privately admitted that there might be more to mr ipple's reputation than in his haste he had imagined nevertheless he objected to the spots down the front of mr ipple's waistcoat the curtain was late as it often is when the management has specially asked the audience to be seated punctually at a given hour the orchestra played several items and then several others and as the minutes passed so did mr ipple maintain and secure with young mr several his position as the foremost dramatic critic in london and mr ipple was satisfied with himself and he saw in young mr several's gradual change of attitude the assurance that after six months absence from the theatrical world he uh, mr ipple was as strong as ever 
and he was all the more satisfied in that this was the first time that he had ever had a fair tussling chance with an exponent of the new slap-dash school of dramatic criticism what did i tell you said mr several with an unbefitting nonchalance to mr ipple when betty brick made her appearance and in fact betty did not look more than nineteen but mr ipple shook his head convinced that she would never see twenty-eight again since he knew everything about the theatre and did not confine his interest to the literary quality of plays as some critics did he knew all about the craft of making up and the skill of actresses to recall gestures which they ought long before to have forgotten he was however delighted with betty evidently betty had the stage in her bones she was experienced as no girl of nineteen could be and her charm was extremely potent in its endless grace she charmed all the time and she charmed everybody she was incapable of being dull she was continually doing the unexpected and yet the right thing she not only triumphed over mr ipple and the rest of the audience she triumphed over the play mr ipple did not like the play on its superficial aspects he ought to have liked it for the plot was as old as grease paint and the sentiment as sweet as the finest theatre bonbons it related the ancient story of the group of crusty bachelors expecting the arrival of a baby niece an orphan who proves to be a grown-up young lady of surpassing seductiveness and of course she is no more a niece than she is a baby nieces are entirely useless in such a narrative because crusty bachelors cannot marry their nieces and would not dream of wanting to marry their niece on the surface everything was all right with the play but beneath the surface irony and realism could be discerned uncomfortably moving and in truth the play was a ruthless skit on five hundred other plays with a similar surface at one moment the sentiment was fantastically exaggerated at the next moment the characters were cruelly forced to behave as they would actually have behaved in real life mr ipple with the majority of the audience hated irony and realism and he did not desire the stage to be like life he wanted the stage to be one thing and life quite another and immediately a play resembled life he called it unhealthy the scheme of his criticism formed itself in mr ipple's mind he would scourge and destroy the play in fact he would kill it but he would save the actress he would eliminate betty brick from the slaughter she had a future he had assisted at the debut of many famous stars and he felt that he was assisting at such a debut now betty would need help in the terrible struggle for supremacy that lay before her he would give help generous and powerful help it would be his august pleasure to do so he decided that after the second act he would pay betty a visit in her dressing-room and to this end after the first act he broke his rule of remaining in his seat and sought the foyer except on special urgent business persons of authentic importance never leave their seats during the entr'acte on a first night dignity forbids the foyer is for second-raters chatterers and riff-raff two 
Mr. Percival escorted him behind. Mr. Percival was the manager for the production, a youngish, stout man with full lips and a rather luscious utterance. Mr. Percival took him through the iron door behind box A that separated the front of the house from the working parts thereof. The assistant stage manager, who was excitedly exhorting an electrician at the switchboard, saw them first and immediately became calm. The assistant stage manager's awed eye said, The great Louis Ipple has come behind. Unfortunately for himself, the assistant stage manager was not important enough in the world even to salute Mr. Louis Ipple. The visiting pair threaded their obscure way among properties, a piano or so, and several artistes, one of whom, a stout lady who played dowagers, bowed to Mr. Ipple in the grand manner. It became generally known on the stage that Mr. Louis Ipple was behind. Only the hasting scene-shifters ignored him. More accurately, they didn't ignore him. They behaved as if he were not there, as though he were an invisible and impalpable ghost. They would have walked through him if he had not removed himself sharply from their paths. Mr. Ipple, however, knowing the ruthlessness of scene-shifters during Antrox, did sharply remove himself from their paths. The pair climbed a series of echoing stone stairways, and Mr. Percival apologized for certain untidinesses, explaining that he had but just come into possession, and that there was much to be done to a neglected theatre. "'Here we are,' said Mr. Percival, stopping at a door. Sorry there are so many stairs, but you know what these old-fashioned theatres are. Mr. Louis Ipple read on a white card stuck into a metal case on the door, Number one, Miss Betty Brick. Yes, she had number one dressing room. She was the leading lady, poor inexperienced little thing, and he had carried his vast reputation and influence up all those stairs in order to be kind to her. A tremendous compliment. Every gesture of Mr. Percival, every tone of his caressing voice, showed that it was a tremendous compliment. "'Can I come in?' called Mr. Percival, knocking sharply and opening the door a few inches. A fat dresser appeared. "'Miss Brick visible?' he asked the dresser in a low, cautious tone. "'I've brought Mr. Louis Ipple to see her.' "'Come in, come in,' rang a young, girlish voice. They went in. The room was divided in two by curtains, and Betty was at the further end, near the electric stove. "'I've brought Mr. Louis Ipple to see you, Miss Brick,' said Mr. Percival. "'I hope I'm not disturbing you,' said Mr. Ipple, magnificently polite. "'Oh, please,' said Betty, moving forward. She might have added, "'How can you say such a thing to poor little me?' But she did not." Her glance might have said, I am the dust under your feet, and I never dreamed of such an honor as you are now paying me. But her glance did not. Still, success had apparently not made her conceited. She was much excited by it, but not a bit above herself. Her demeanor was natural, nice, candid, and entirely delightful. Said Mr. Ipple to himself, She has not caught my name. Betty then said, "'Won't you sit down, Mr. Ipple?' Mr. Percival had discreetly managed. Whereupon Mr. Ipple said to himself, "'She can't have the slightest notion who I am.' 
and he decided just for the fun of the thing that he would not at present explain to her who he was the revelation when it came to her would be all the more amusing for him well emphatically she was young in the matter of her age young several had been right and mr ipple quite wrong she was generously painted with vermilion lips and cheeks and eyes grossly enlarged with black according to the usual absurd custom the make-up aged her but in the dressing-room it could not hide the genuineness of her extreme youth she was so young that mr ipple felt sorry for her and the dressing-room showed that she had no career behind her there was a small bunch of flowers but it must have come from a blood relation and looked as though it had been bought in the street for about two shillings in his time mr ipple had seen forty pounds worth of flowers in the dressing-room of a star on a first night and there were no expensive boxes of chocolates indeed no chocolates at all and no caricatures or other sketches pinned on the walls still more extraordinary there were no other callers most extraordinary of all there were no well-wishing telegrams pinned on the walls mr ipple described two telegrams lying on the corner of a bench the child did not even know enough to pin them up or perhaps she had wisely decided that two telegrams were too few to pin up and might seem ridiculous if made prominent nor had betty any flow of conversation true this was not surprising to mr ipple who was aware that eighty per cent of actresses have practically nothing to say while another ten are apt to drown you in cascades of words signifying nothing she was not shy she was not preoccupied with her clothes for she had not to change nor did mr ipple think that she was preoccupied with her part she just had the gift of being taciturn without being awkward she had little to say and said it further she did not smoke nor invite mr ipple to smoke lastly she did not hum from nervousness or constraint i suppose you like your success said mr ipple with a benevolent interrogating smile i just love it she said quite simply whereas mr ipple would have expected her to say oh mr ipple do you really think it is a success i feel i'm being most frightfully overappreciated after a little pause she said i hope you haven't come to interview me mr ipple was much shocked mr ipple an interviewer mr ipple had never interviewed anybody in his life mr ipple was not the theatrical gossip-monger of his paper out to pick up whatever trifles he could get he was the dramatic critic oh no he answered lightly and easily uh, but don't you like being interviewed i don't know she said i've never been interviewed daddy says it will be much better for me never to give an interview daddy strange word in a star's dressing-room she went on i'm awfully upset tonight because mother and father aren't here daddy's got one of his bad bilious attacks and mother's looking after him she came for the first act and then she went home again what a pity mr ipple sympathized isn't it i should just think it is do i understand this is your first appearance in the west end mr ipple inquired she nodded then you've had a lot of experience touring no i've never what you call toured daddy didn't want me to 
I did a short tour of suburban theatres with Mrs. X, Mrs. X being a superstar who had starred before Betty was born. But she wouldn't have me for her long tour. Daddy said it was because I got too much applause. But Mrs. X was always very kind to me. Of course, only playing in suburban theatres, I could go home every night. And before that? Before that? Betty stroked her short skirt. Before that, I used to be in the Putney Amateur Dramatic Society, nothing else. But where did you learn your job? Academy of Dramatic Art? What's that? Betty asked. I didn't learn it anywhere. Of course, when we did things at Putney, we always had a professional producer for the last fortnight before each show. He taught us. It was he who got me the job with Mrs. X. And so that's all? That's all. Well, said Mr. Ipple, with a humorous warmth, if you haven't got a past, you've certainly got a future. That's what everyone says, Betty agreed with simplicity, not with conceit, merely with disconcerting simplicity. It's a pity you haven't a better part in this show, said Mr. Ipple. But it's a splendid part, she protested. No, young lady, Mr. Ipple maintained firmly, I don't like either the play or the part, and the great majority of experienced people will agree with me. The play may run, I don't say it won't, but if it does, the success will be due solely to yourself. Believe me. But I can't believe you, said Betty, pouting somewhat. Oh, Mr. Ipple, you do like the new school of playwrights, don't you? You must. She was actually lecturing him, but with most persuasive, youthful charm. Mr. Ipple merely raised his hands, a trick which he had learned in the drawing-rooms of French actresses. "'Beginners for the third act!' the voice of the call-boy sounded in the passage. At the same moment a head intruded into the room. It was the head of young Several. "'Hello, Arthur!' cried Betty. "'Have you brought those chocks?' Arthur had brought them. Arthur was slightly confused at the sight of Mr. Ipple, and his confusion was comprehensible, for in the conversation in the stalls he had basely not given the least hint to Mr. Ipple that he was on chocolate and Christian name terms with Betty. Mr. Ipple rose. "'Well, Miss Brick, I am delighted to have made your acquaintance.' "'Good-bye,' said she, with a very charming and honest smile, taking his hand but he could see well enough that, though full of good nature towards him, she was thinking less of him than of the Arthurian chocolates. She added, and I shall read with all the more interest what the Daily Post has to say tomorrow morning. Goodbye, so nice of you. Then she had known all through who he was. Mr. Percival was abundantly waiting for him at the end of the corridor. But before Mr. Ipple got to the end of the corridor, he heard a terrific explosion of laughter from the dressing-room. It was male laughter, caused by Betty's artless, sincere remark about the departed Mr. Ipple. Oh, what a funny little old man! Curious creature, isn't she? said Mr. Percival, as they descended the stairs. She's the right sort replied Mr. Ipple with emphasis and with all the authority which he had temporarily lost in the dressing-room. Oh, uh, of course, uh, assuredly, uh, assuredly, Mr. Percival agreed with quick deference. Mr. Ipple had defended Betty somehow in spite of himself. 
Betty's attitude towards himself had been as startling as it was lamentable, but she was so artless over it, so straight, so sincere, so unaffected, and so charming. The one disturbing thing was that she had mysteriously impaired his confidence in Mr. Ipple. He, who was by general consent one of the greatest and most impressive figures in the world of the theatre, had been cutting no figure at all for about ten minutes. 3. Within a quarter of an hour of the end of the play, Mr. Ipple, who, like the other morning paper critics, had fled before the unparalleled scenes of enthusiasm had commenced, was writing his notice in an office of which the tremendous furniture recalled the first-class waiting-rooms of a great railway terminus in the majestic building of the Daily Post. The climax of the play had by its truth to nature greatly annoyed Mr. Ipple, and he was much surprised, and even disturbed, to find that the audience really liked it, in addition to adoring Betty Brick. However, he was not the man to be intimidated by audiences. He had always told the public what he thought was good for it, and he would continue to do so. He wrote quickly and steadily, and he wrote at length, because the policy of the Daily Post was never to say anything in ten words that could be said almost as well in twenty. The Daily Post was spacious, and it courteously assumed that its readers were people of leisure. As he wrote, a dirty boy in a clean, smart uniform took away the filled sheets. Mr. Ipple wrote his notices once for all. He made no alterations in them, nor did he ask to see a proof of them. He was an expert, knew his job, and did his job with perfect assurance. He began, as always, in the calm judicial vein, but within thirty lines of the heading he had definitely deviated into the vein of very severe reprimand, reprimand, that is to say, of the author. He was always severe on authors, of actors he instinctively thought the best of authors he instinctively thought the worst actors were under his protection actors were in his own phrase faithful servants of the public whereas authors were nothing of the kind authors were generally something sinister and reprehensible that came between the public with its great heart beating true and the faithful servants of the public impeding the faithful servants in the proper performance of their task of serving. To this particular play, Mr. Ipple applied the following epithets, dangerous, unwholesome, sickly, shamelessly cynical, formless, amateurish, insidious, continental. He then fully admitted the unquestionable popular success of the play, for he was perfectly honest under any but a very exceptional strain, and then he said that, of course, the performers had saved the play, and that the author owed everything to them. The transition to Betty Brick was natural and easy. He became lyrical about Betty, he achieved prose poetry about Betty, and at the close of his article was a highly remarkable bit of British composition. He looked back into his memory and decided that within the memory of living men, no English debutante had received such a laudation, at once grandiose, sincere, and convincing, in any first-class organ of opinion. Then he went home to his little solitary flat in Sackville Street. 
he was a childless widower of many years standing and beyond a fine theatrical library and a valet who perfectly understood mr ipple his flat had no distinction for he belonged to the race of clubmen rather than to the race of householders he did not sleep well indeed he did not even go to bed for a long time he sat in a chair crossed and uncrossed his legs and meditated upon betty do not imagine that he was in love with the young creature at his age he was convinced that he was not do not imagine on the other hand that he had anything against her no he admired and respected her in a high degree that was all she was delightful she was a genius and no exception whatever could be taken to her he created her ravishing image in the glow of the gas stove and he desired to see her again the next morning the valet brought to his nervous and fatigued master a selection of the dailies and mr ipple read his own article and saw that it was good the other papers had warm appreciation of the play which pained mr ipple who was confirmed in his opinion that the world was not what it used to be still the opinions of other critics did not annoy mr ipple because he was admittedly the chief critic he wanted to send a marked copy of the daily post with his compliments to miss brick not that she would not have seen it you bet that she was anxiously reading it at that very moment but as a mark of esteem and regard but naturally he could not do such a thing it would have been undignified he wanted more than ever to see her again he could not call on her a second time in her dressing-room he was too great for that he could not even go and see the play a second time for if he went everybody would remark his presence and wonder what on earth he was doing in the theatre so soon after the first performance and certainly he could not wait for her at the stage door his mental condition was not improved when his dear old pal the titled proprietor of the daily post rang him up on the telephone and in a friendly old palish way expressed some astonishment at the severity of his criticism of the play i say a bit stiff this morning aren't you old boy such was one of the affectionate phrases employed by the proprietor mr ipple could not make out what the world was coming to however in the afternoon he was comforted at the sight of half a column special advertisement of the play in the evening papers giving several laudatory extracts from press notices in large capitals and his own laudation of betty at the top during the day it became very plain that betty's success was the success of the decade of the century it banged everything the ticket offices had bought blocks of seats for six months ahead but all this did not bring mr ipple any nearer to betty three days later he received an invitation from the management to a supper on the stage to meet miss betty brick he generally refused such invitations but this one he did not refuse he felt as if it had saved his life four the supper was one of those upright affairs in which the champagne is hot the soup cold and the sandwiches disillusioned by reason of their experience of life nevertheless it cost money it demonstrated the real immensity of betty brick's success 
and it was attended by an enormous crowd of persons thoroughly accustomed to seeing their names and portraits in the newspapers there were several peers several editors including the lady who had been made an editor because of her face and her exceeding talent for self-advertisement several cabinet ministers several prize-fighters several very renowned social mountebanks and several princes of the cinema the rage of the mature actresses present against the chit who had bounded ahead of them all in four days was as genuine as it was well concealed mr lewis ipple came rather low down in the scale of importance also he was curiously modest in regard to betty brick the queen though his eyes followed her everywhere he was most diffident about going up to her and talking to her he spent his time in eating her with his eyes and admiring tremendously her charm her demeanour her entrancing sincere simplicity she had a role difficult to fill and she filled it to perfection after about a quarter of an hour the production manager pushed towards him through the crowd and said mr ipple will you permit me to introduce you to mr cecil brick our beloved betty's father mr ipple permitted with alacrity and shook hands with a clean-shaven man of about forty who looked like a lawyer and indeed was one if only a suburban lawyer mr cecil brick displayed all the deference that mr ipple could have desired and all that his daughter in her simple directness had failed to display he made no bones about the fact that in his mind mr lewis ipple was mr lewis ipple and the first of dramatic critics he expressed unlimited gratitude to mr ipple for the wonderful eulogy that mr ipple had been pleased to bestow upon betty in return mr ipple expressed the hope that mr cecil brick was restored to health it appeared that while mr brick was restored to health mrs brick was now stricken mr ipple commiserated they then discussed the theatre as an institution then mr ipple in a flash of inspiration said i'm giving a little luncheon at the savoy next wednesday to a few leading theatrical people do you think that your daughter would come and would you and mrs brick bring her mr brick answered without hesitation i am quite sure that betty would be delighted to come but i shall ask you to excuse mrs brick and myself i'm never free for lunch and my wife's health would not allow her to come a sensible man mr brick a man who could look facts in the face. Mr. Brick realized that Mr. Ipple did not really want parents at the lunch, and he realized also that Mr. Ipple was a man worth humoring. The matter being settled in terms of the highest politeness, Mr. Ipple began to invite other guests on the spot. He took care to ask no really important feminine star, in order that he might put Betty on his right hand without arousing regrettable passions. The lunch would be as naught to him, and less than naught if he could not have Betty next to him. He was very happy and excited in the prospect of the party. He met with no refusals from those whom he invited, but he had not yet spoken to Betty herself gathering his courage he went straight up to her and shook hands she was talking to her father and a peer he considered that she was divine oh but daddy she said at mention of the lunch you know that wednesday's the day that arthur several's coming to lunch she spoke nicely but firmly 
even somewhat haughtily she showed a certain impatience already she had developed into the experienced leading lady whom the whole earth conspires to spoil evidently her father was no longer the sultan on the hearthrug doubtless the rich film contract which mr brick had made for her that morning contributed to the decision of her attitude mr brick accepted the minor role of a great star's father and solicitor though mr ipple had horrible sensations his resources did not fail but i am asking mr several too he said with amazing rapidity he won he was happy but not so happy as he had been a few minutes earlier five at five minutes past the hour fixed for the luncheon mr lewis ipple together with three ladies and one man was waiting in the foyer of the savoy hotel the air was full of music and grateful odours and appetite and the savour of life and the conspiracy of the directors of the hotel to convince visitors that the millennium had arrived and was functioning just there seemed to be rather successful mr ipple however had no such conviction while talking intelligently about music he glanced at the stairs leading down from the great lobby and everybody who was anybody came self-consciously down those stairs except betty brick then she came bringing some kind of a millennium with her she looked as if she had come straight from the dressmakers having left an old frock behind and called at the modistes on the way having left an old hat behind she was clothed in the last degree of audacity but she wore her attire with dignity her youthful freshness the freedom of her movements her innocent yet self-reliant smile were dazzling she appeared to have no self-consciousness the three women two middle-aged one young and ambitious exclaimed softly and flatteringly to each other and to mr ipple upon her beauty her charm and her simplicity her entry would have been perfect for mr ipple had betty not been accompanied by arthur several he had feared she would come with several he did not like it especially as several himself was exceedingly smart with a hint of a waist and very young moreover the plush footman greeted several as an established patron and took his hat and stick without any formality of giving a check in exchange mr ipple determined to separate betty and arthur at the luncheon-table i do hope we aren't the last said betty apologizing for lateness they were not the last would be a certain baronet who interested himself in the stage to the extent of losing a few thousands every year in some enterprise that prided itself on not being commercial all felt that it was the right of the baronet to arrive last he came, black and white check trousers and white spats, within the next minute, puffing, frothing, hee-hawing, and giggling. Miss Tita Rodin, one of the elder ladies, famous for her dowagers of the old school, with whom Betty had been chatting privately, attached herself to the baronet at once. The party of eight passed conversationally into the crowded restaurant and since quite half of the lunchers carried complete copies of who's who in their hearts they were recognized at once to the universal satisfaction 
do let me have sir waverley next to me i want to grumble at him at length said tita rodin with her spacious humour appealingly as the party gathered at the large round blossoming table in the corner on the embankment front mr lewis ipple could not say no though sir waverley's place was unquestionably on betty brick's right by the time they were all seated mr ipple had reconciled himself to the fact that by means of a secret understanding between two women arthur several was established in the place of honour on betty's right he had to be philosophical about it because as host he had to be bright he was a practised host he did not entertain often because he could not afford it but he had been entertaining at restaurants for thirty years and he knew how by prevision to assure the smooth passage of the meal on perilous seas the maitre d'hôtel of the restaurant deigned to interest himself personally in the affair and talked to mr ipple in french but the maitre d'hôtel was also acquainted with betty and talked to her in english yesterday betty was nobody to-day she was on terms with one of the most august figures in the empire tita rodin did engage sir waverley they gossiped tremendously in a great deal of cross-talk they were turned towards each other on their chairs betty and arthur several also turned towards each other on their chairs earnestly conversing but in quiet tones and without back-chat mr lewis ipple sat forlorn and neglected the whole restaurant saw him the host forlorn and neglected the purgatorial situation persisted for an immense period of time until tita rodin in a swift coy movement of her massive face as it turned away from one of the baronet's witty digs caught sight of mr lewis ipple forlorn and saw that she had been guilty of a social lapse oh don't mind me said mr ipple with an admirable imitation of archness D don't mind me I'm, I'm only your host whereupon the two women tita and betty combined suddenly to recompense him they wondrously encircled him in smiles and adorable attentions while the baronet and arthur several switched off to other ladies mr ipple was less unhappy and he would have been still less unhappy had tita rodin not deserted her baronet he marvelled at betty brick's qualities both physical and mental he honestly thought that such a combination of beauty sense kindness strength and charm as she presented had never previously occurred in the history of the sex but most of all her unspoilt youth charmed him there she was sitting next to him as his chief guest in the savoy and being exquisitely nice to him while all the world of the savoy watched scores of otherwise triumphant men must have envied him at that moment his relations with the new star of the first magnitude nevertheless his contentment was only superficial like a thin crust of ice glittering over dark depths of disillusion then the catastrophe began tita rodin began it by the most fulsome praise of his article about the play in which betty brick had found glory she praised mr ipple's praise of betty and not satisfied with that she praised his castigation of the play itself i'm old-fashioned enough she said 
a silly phrase silly because it implied that mr ipple also was old-fashioned he would not have minded that so much if betty brick's demeanour had not suddenly changed betty exercised with dignity all her prestige oh she remained very nice very kind very polite but she made mr ipple understand plainly that she objected to his treatment of the play her beautiful eyes sparkled a controlled resentment she felt with keenness about the future of the theatre and her notions concerning the evolution of the drama were what is called advanced she said further that his praise of herself was too indiscriminate and had made her feel rather awkward as she read it she said that arthur several had found grave defects in her performance and had set them forth in his paper while powerfully praising the play and that she had loved arthur's notice astounding woman mr ipple had never met any actress in the least like her mr ipple was snubbed and publicly politely and unexceptionably snubbed and the worst was that he continued to respect and worship his destroyer on account of the firm character which she was now showing she lost nothing in his esteem but he had lost a lot in hers to intensify his tragedy the conversation became general and the entire table save foolish fat tita rodan with her absurd i'm old-fashioned enough the entire table sided with betty and against their host am i getting old-fashioned mr lewis ipple asked himself the dreadful suspicion had never before entered his mind he reflected that in the london notices of the nice niece he had been practically alone in one camp and all the other critics in the other camp and now he conceived the possibility of the other critics not being all absolutely wrong which possibility he had not conceived previously he remembered the gentle reproof administered to him on the telephone by his proprietor he noticed the stains on his concave waistcoat and the impeccably smart clothes of young several he had slept very badly during the night why and now in an instant a strange and distressing lassitude overcame him and he knew that he was destroyed betty brick changed the subject of conversation she was very tactful the tactfulness was torture to him as a madman digging his own grave he went back to the subject horribly fascinated by it and tita rodan committed further follies and betty would not abate her uncompromising demeanour and arthur several smiled ironically to himself and at last the table grew silent in constraint nothing had happened and yet everything had happened brightness fell from the savoy air the idea in the hinterland of mr ipple's mind was i am a back number the restaurant was emptying mr ipple wafted his party into the lounge for coffee betty brick drank her coffee and then with all sweet apologies said she had to go and she thanked him beautifully for the luncheon and departed taking arthur several with her and leaving mr ipple's good opinion of himself shattered at mr ipple's feet soon all the others went except tita tita wouldn't go she talked fatuously we older people she said at last she went
Mr. Ipple discharged the bill. What had Mr. Ipple against Betty Brick? He had nothing against her. He still worshipped her. Only she had fought an invisible battle with him and annihilated him. She had smashed him because she was beautiful and talented and sincere and original and in enormous vogue and, above all, young. And it was her youth that was the deciding factor of the issue. The tremendous advantage of youth is unfair and cruel, but it exists. Betty had behaved perfectly, but she had killed him, and she would very soon forget him. He had given a lifetime to the slow building of his reputation. She had supervened, and with no effort, instantly wrecked it. He walked home, still thinking, I am a back number. He would not even try to see her again. She did not guess what she had done. She was perfect. Within a month, Mr. Ipple resigned his position on the Daily Post, rumors said on a substantial pension. Paragraphs appeared in the theatrical columns of the press, brief circles on the surface round a sunk stone. Then Mr. Ipple was replaced, and he was forgotten. Poor old Ipple, people murmured, and admired and gloated over the gorgeous increasing success of Betty Brick, the finest actress of her generation, and a rare fine young woman to boot. Every untoward event in the evolution of society has its compensation, and the wise look back with sympathy and forward with eager hope. End of story 10